0: ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we read the passage for this morning. Uh, we're once again in the gospel according to Luke. We are in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 to 62. Luke 22, 47 to 62. Luke 22, 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows this day, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the advance of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we consider this passage of Scripture, Lord Jesus, as we consider your arrest, as we consider how you were betrayed and how you were denied by your disciples, I pray, Lord Jesus, that through the power of your Spirit you would help us to place ourselves in this story. Help us to to see these things not just as things that, that that happened to people a long time ago, but as, as what happened to you, and Lord, as a picture of how you relate to us. I pray that you would help us to see our sin, help us to see our need, help us, Lord, all of us, to turn to you in repentance and faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. In October 1879, after working on at least 3,000 different theories to develop a commercially viable incandescent light bulb, Thomas Alva Edison succeeded. He used a filament of carbonized sewing thread housed in a vacuum tube made of blown glass and it burned for under 15 hours. He used a bamboo filament and increased it up to 1,200 hours. And after Edison and a a team had been working on improvements to the prototype for over 24 hours, Edison handed the precious light bulb to a a young helper to carry upstairs to the vacuum machine. You can imagine how gingerly this man walked step by step as he carried this light bulb up the stairs. I think you know what's coming next. He dropped the light bulb and it smashed to smithereens. And so the team went back to work for another 24 hours to make another. And when they had completed this second light bulb, who, who do you think Edison handed it to? Who would you hand it to? Well, Edison handed it back to the same young helper. And so in this, we we see, I, I think you can, you can see Edison's Wisdom, because in reality, after what happened the first time you can guarantee that there were probably not a safer set of hands in the whole country than that man's hands. But I think even more than that, you can also see Edison's character. You you can see his benevolence. Now it's popular in our day to criticize Edison, but, but I think here his character came through. Because he he, he wanted to entrust, he he could have destroyed that young man's life in, in a moment or let that young man's failure destroy his own life, but he gave him another chance. I wonder, do you ever feel like that young helper? Do you ever feel like you've dropped the light bulb and you're just standing there looking at pieces of glass all over the floor? Do you ever feel like you've dropped the light? Do you ever feel like you've failed? Do you ever feel like you've failed again and again and again? Maybe you feel like you've let Jesus down. And maybe you're wondering if Jesus will drop you. Well, listen carefully to this passage this morning. Pay attention to the relationships between Jesus and Judas. Judas. And between Jesus and Peter. Judas, who is blessed with the unparalleled privilege of being one of the twelve disciples chosen by Jesus. Judas is about to succeed in his diabolical mission to betray Jesus into the hands of the religious authorities. And Peter, who is also chosen as one of the twelve, as a leader of the twelve, is about to deny Jesus, not just once, but three times. And a fourth time, if you consider the incident in the garden. And take note of how Jesus responds to them, to each of them, to Judas and to Peter, even in the midst of his own time of intense suffering. Jesus and his disciples are in the garden of Gethsemane, that the passion of Jesus Christ has begun. He has been agonizing in prayer, in abject horror, at the prospect of bearing the sins of his people and bearing the wrath of God for those sins. Asking his heavenly father, imploring his heavenly father, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Remember that God sent an angel to strengthen Jesus, but he's, he's even still, he prayed more earnestly, his humanity on full display as he sweat blood. But even in his agony, his compassion was on full display as well as he used this occasion to warn the disciples. Twice, in fact, twice he warned them to pray to not enter into temptation. So even in his suffering, the Lord Jesus is demonstrating his love for his disciples. He truly is the suffering servant. Well, now in the passage before us, still in the Garden of Gethsemane, even as Jesus is about to be arrested, remarkably, the focus on this passage before us shifts to others. Ever since the birth of Jesus, back in Luke 2, Jesus is awfully, has obviously been the primary character of Luke's gospel account, and maybe I'm being captain obvious here, but but Jesus has performed most of the action and done most of the talking throughout Luke's gospel. It couldn't be any other way, because after all, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in our passage this morning, Jesus, Jesus is the recipient of most of the action and really doesn't say very much. In fact, that's the case all the way to the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. Jesus is being mistreated at the hands of sinful men. So this morning we're going to see Judas' betrayal of Jesus in verses 47 to 53 and Peter's denial of Jesus in verses 54 to 62. As Judas betrays Jesus and as Jesus is arrested, Jesus does speak twice and perform a miracle in the first part in response to the actions of others. But in the second part, Peter is is present, but Jesus only appears briefly. But it's in responding to these two situations, to these two sinners and these two situations that, that we see the character of Jesus. We see that Jesus Christ is fully cognizant of what is going on and is fully in control the whole time as Judas betrays him and as Peter denies him. The sins of of these two men really aren't that dissimilar. But their eternal destinies are as different as darkness and light. The response of of Jesus to these two sinners reveals further who he is and what he has come to do. So first of all, in in Judas' betrayal in verses 47 to 53, after Jesus has agonized in prayer, Jesus went to his disciples and, and asked them, why are you sleeping? He said, rise up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He barely has the words out of his mouth when suddenly a crowd appeared. Temptation has arrived. Now Luke doesn't tell us right away who they are and what they are there for, but he strikes an ominous indication by identifying one from among their number. The crowd is led by Judas, now described as the man and as one of the twelve, showing the magnitude of his treachery. This former disciple has turned traitor. His soul has been possessed by Satan himself. Now Satan has shifted tactics from, from trying to tempt Jesus away from the cross and now trying to torture Jesus at the cross. For much of Jesus' ministry, he's been swarmed by crowds, the majority of whom, at least outwardly, had been supportive. But this crowd had entirely different motivations. This crowd wasn't seeking Jesus for healing or to learn from him. This was a lynch mob. The Supportive crowds had kept... Jesus from being arrested or killed earlier but this crowd is set on destroying him and very soon that crowd will join this crowd. Judas approached Jesus to kiss him on the cheek. This was the the conventional greeting of respect in the ancient Near East much as a handshake in our culture but Jesus interrupts Judas asking Judas would you betray the son of man with a kiss Judas led the crowd, but Jesus is still in control. Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's, he's highlighting who he is in his messianic authority, further amplifying the magnitude of the sin that Judas is in the process of committing. But there's a note of mercy. There's a note of mercy in Jesus' question. Jesus is giving Judas an opportunity to repent, but obviously he doesn't. He's going to experience the woe that Jesus spoke of at the Lord's table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Remember, Luke introduced us to Judas as a traitor back in Luke 16, 17. Now Judas completes his betrayal, fulfills his wicked agreement with the chief priests and officers to, to betray Jesus into their hands. Judas was well aware of the fact that Jesus would have been here in the Garden of Gethsemane at night. This is what he's been doing all week. Every night, every day, he'd be teaching in the temple and then at night, he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples. And so Judas knew this and so he knew that he could bring, bring the, the authorities there to arrest Jesus away from the watching crowds. He's led the lynch mob to Jesus and now in an act of utter hypocrisy, he gives the prearranged sign. He kisses Jesus and thus identifies Jesus to his enemies, and thus identifies himself as the enemy of Christ. This unholy kiss is the fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is also the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy we spoke of earlier, that the, 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 is he's pronouncing woe on the betrayer. John 18 includes the detail that Jesus asked them who they were seeking. They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And when he said, I am he, they all fell backwards to the ground. And the rest of the disciples now figure out what's going on. And they asked Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Evidently producing the swords that they've been carrying at the Lord's Supper. Later in John 18, 36, Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And the evidence that Jesus presents is the fact that his servants have not been fighting. The kingdom of God does not advance by the sword, but by the gospel. The disciples don't understand that. They reject that. The disciples call Jesus Lord, but they aren't acting like he's the Lord. They act in a way that is very contrary to Jesus' character and contrary to his teaching. They're very unlike Jesus. Jesus, who has struggled in prayer, enters this phase of his suffering with with perfect composure and self-control, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But the disciples, who have been sleeping rather than praying, respond with confusion and anger empowered by the flesh. And one of the disciples, John tells us that it's Peter, doesn't even wait for the answer from Jesus. He foolishly rushes in, sword in hand, and cuts off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. John provides the name. It's, his name was Malchus. Now, while this might not be a, a direct denial of Christ's person per se... Peter's actions are a denial of Christ's teaching and his command. So that that is a denial of Christ's person. So really, this is the first denial that Peter makes of Jesus. Well, perhaps you can identify with Peter here. A situation develops that that catches you off guard. You haven't prepared yourself for it in in daily prayer, seeking the Lord's strength. So, So your flesh has free reign, and so you make a bad situation worse. Maybe that even happened this morning before church. Listen to J.C. Ryle. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To be still and endure calmly is far more hard than to stir about and take part in the battle. He said, Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. Ryle is saying here that it is much easier to fight in the flesh than it is to fight against the flesh. It is much more difficult to be still and humbly rest in Christ than to lash out, even when you claim to be making a stand for Christ and for his righteousness. It's much easier to take matters into your own hands than to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And if you are not drawing on the strength of God, relying on the strength of God, your flesh will control your behavior every single time. I've said this many times, but you cannot fight spiritual battles with fleshly means. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1.20 And so Jesus shows his disciples, then and now, them and us, how to respond correctly. Now the words are difficult to translate, but Jesus essentially says, no more of this. This is his last instruction before his resurrection. He's about to form the, his last miracle before the resurrection as well. He touches Malchus's ear and heals him. Jesus, once again, is just demonstrating his power and his authority even as he's arrested. Now, I don't know if he he picked the ear up off the ground and stuck it there or whether he just touched the ear and Malchus grew a new ear. But Malchus didn't ask to be healed. Malchus had no faith in Jesus, quite the opposite. Malchus was the enemy of Jesus, but nonetheless, Jesus healed him. If Jesus heals such a man as this, what should this tell us about how we should treat our enemies? Remember Luke six twenty-seven 27-29. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Again, you can't do this in your own strength. You can't do any of this in your own strength. But We rely on the Holy Spirit to work in us and to empower us so we can respond in a way that, that the Lord would have us respond. Again, I can I can think of times just yesterday. It's probably today too, but I'm not aware of it at this point, where I've responded to, to a spiritual situation in a fleshly way. Where I've been really in reality, more like Judas and more like Peter than I am like Jesus. Well, now Jesus speaks to his captors who, Luke finally tells us, are the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders. These are the religious authorities. John adds that there was also a band of soldiers present. They'd, evidently, they elicited the, the help of, of the Romans to arrest Jesus. And so Jesus asked them, he says, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? They will not be allowed to proceed until Jesus has said what needs to be said. He is still sovereign. They came to arrest him armed for battle, although he were a dangerous criminal, but he's just proven otherwise by healing one of them. In fact, he's proven otherwise throughout his entire ministry by healing multitudes and by proclaiming Peace with God. This was no robber. This was no dangerous revolutionary. He was a revolutionary, but not a dangerous revolutionary. Not dangerous because he came to proclaim peace, which was a danger to those who are enemies of God. Jesus continues, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. For the preceding week, he'd been right there in the temple, teaching in the open, but they made no attempt to arrest him because they were afraid of the crowds who supported them. But now they came after him with the help of Jesus, or rather with the help of Judas, under the cover of darkness. And so Jesus completes his rebuke saying, "But this is your hour and the power of darkness." This is their hour. This, is where, this was their opportunity to do the evil that was in their hearts. This was their time to shine as if darkness could be truly said to shine. This was their hour of power. And the power behind them was the power of darkness. God is sovereign over all things and is even over the power of darkness. Yet he is not the author of sin. Evil men have the freedom to choose, but evil men will always choose evil because their hearts are not free. They're bound to their sin. But even still, God will not allow them to act unless he allows them to act. Furthermore, they cannot act until he allows them to act, and they can only act as long as he allows them to act. Satan and his servants are like a dog on a chain. Now Judas, as we've already seen, is was possessed by Satan. Now that might not be true for the others, but they're still serving Satan. The religious authorities are tools of Satan every bit as much as Judas. But Jesus is still in control of the whole situation even as he allows himself to fall into his enemy's hands. Jesus is allowing evil to have its will because it fulfills God's purposes. As Mark tells us in Mark 14, 49, Jesus said, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is all the fulfillment of scripture. This is all the fulfillment of God's plan Of redemption. So brothers and sisters, take heart. Because darkness might seem to prevail even now, but it's going to get a lot worse before the end. But the power and duration of evil are limited by God. And God will use the powers of darkness to achieve His will for the glory of His name and for the advance of His kingdom, even His kingdom in your heart. But the disciples didn't understand yet. So, as Mark adds, they left him and fled. But one still followed Jesus, though at a distance. So now now look at Peter's denial, verses 54 to 62. Verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. A number of those from the lynch mob had gathered in the courtyard of the high priest's house. And Peter sat down among them. So the, the scene, the focus of the scene now shifts to Peter in the courtyard. But let's not forget what's going on inside the house. As Jesus is being interrogated by the religious authorities. Let us not forget either that, that Satan is still acting behind the scenes. Remember, he has demanded to have Peter and the disciples to sift them like wheat. The disciples have already fled, so let's watch and see what Peter's sifting looks like. First of all, note that Peter is following Jesus at a distance. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 38, 11. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. But we understand that you cannot follow Jesus at a distance, at least not for long. If you try to keep Jesus at arm's length, before long, you will push Jesus away. Something is dreadfully amiss as we see Peter now sitting with the men who have just arrested Jesus. Even the the high priest's wounded slave is among the ranks. Peter is here actually in the courtyard of the high priest, a place that he never even would have thought he would be. Sitting among the enemies of Jesus, warming himself at their fire. Matthew 26, 58 tells us Peter's motive. He wanted to see the end. He wanted to know what would happen to Jesus. Peter sat in the heat of the fire, but he was out in the cold. Peter sat in the light of the fire, but he was in darkness. And if you try to follow Jesus from afar, very quickly, you will find yourself in places and among people you never thought you would. You will also find yourself saying and doing things that you never thought possible. A servant girl notices Peter by the fire. And she looks intently at him. She stares at him. Peter's in the spotlight and her gaze melts Peter's courage. The fire is not enough to warm his cold heart. The servant girl says to everyone sitting in the fire, this man was also with him. Peter denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. Bold Peter who just proudly proclaimed that he would, that even if others deserted Jesus, he was ready to go with Jesus to prison and to death. Now cowers before a slave girl. In private, he had committed himself to following Jesus, but in public, he caved. To quote P.G. Wodehouse, he wilted like a wet sock. Now, I would argue that what Peter did isn't really too different than what Judas did. Right? One of them betrayed Jesus and the other denied Jesus three or four times. Jesus had warned Peter repeatedly, not not only in general terms, not to deny him like in Luke 9, 23 to 26 and 12, 4 to 12 and and 21, 12 to 19, but but also specifically and personally just the night before. In in Luke 22, 31 to 34, he, he, he had warned the disciples again and again to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him that whoever would seek to save his life would lose it. Whatever loses his life for Jesus' sake will save it. Now Peter denies Jesus instead of denying himself and ceases to follow Jesus instead of following him and seeks to save his life. I think you and I need to be careful not to judge Peter too harshly and risk indicting ourselves. Now I'm in, in no way making excuses for Peter, but just consider for a moment these circumstances. Again, Peter has just cut off the ear of one of the men who's sitting by the fire in his foolish attempt to defend Jesus. And and, and Jesus at this very moment is being grilled by the religious authorities inside the house while Peter is being grilled by those outside the house as he sat by the fire. Now, Lucas had a special emphasis on outsiders throughout his gospel account. We've seen this again and again. And, and women and servants are figured prominently as, as those who are outsiders in that culture. And Lucas has shown how, how Jesus welcomes those who the society deems to be on the outside. But notice the irony here. So this woman who is culturally on the outside Now reveals Peter to also be on the outside, even though he was one of the, of, Jesus, of Jesus, not just of the twelve, but of, of the of the chosen three and of the leader of the twelve. So Peter is now the one who is on the outside. And you and I have denied Jesus under much less dire circumstances. Maybe you've had that, that uncomfortable experience of somebody staring at you. Maybe you're feeling that way right now as I'm looking at you. And you think, wow, okay, this is really awkward. But you think it's about to get maybe, a, a, it's going to get a whole lot more awkward if this person actually speaks to me. And then they do. you think, I'm not going to talk to them. But this is very different. The, the stakes are, are, are much, much higher here. Maybe you could think of times that that you knew you should say to some say someone to something about the Lord, but you chickened out. You're more fear, fearful of the judgment of the person who you're speaking to than you were fearful of the judgment of the Lord. In fact, you loved yourself in that moment more than you loved the person you're speaking to, and more than you loved the Lord. We've all been like Peter. And Peter does it again. Verse 58. A little later, someone else said to him, you were also, also one of them. So time has passed. Peter has had the opportunity to repent, or at least to pray, but he doesn't. This time he denies that he's a disciple of Jesus. He says, man, I'm not. Now, if you cross-reference this with the other gospel accounts, in the synoptic gospels, it seems like, like it was the servant girl had told others, and then others around the fire had picked up on her assertion. So the pressure's heating up, and, and Peter's melting. He, he's, in one sense, he's trying to follow Jesus while saying that he's not a follower of Jesus. It just doesn't work that way. And then an hour later, Peter does it again, verse 59. Yet another person insisted Certainly this man also was one of them, for he too was a Galilean. Matthew tells us that this man recognized Peter's Galilean accent. And John tells us that this man was actually a relative of the man whose ear Peter had severed. And Peter replies, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Peter had been a disciple of Jesus all the way back to the shores of of the Sea of Galilee. So now his denial goes all the way back to the beginning, back to Galilee. He had said he would go with Jesus to prison and to death, but now he denies that he was with Jesus at all. Matthew and Mark tell us that this was with a string of oaths, that he's actually pronouncing curses on himself. And blaspheming the name of the Lord in the the way that that he denied Jesus. Jesus. And while Peter was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The crowd had appeared while Jesus was still speaking and now the rooster crowed while Peter was still speaking. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus had prophesied the night before in Luke twenty-two thirty-four. 34. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crow, or sorry, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Yet again, Jesus is shown to be in sovereign control and fully aware of what is about to take place. Mark is more specific here, indicating that the rooster crowed two times. And now comes the pivotal moment. Jesus, who must have been by this point taken back outside, turned and looked at Peter. Now if the look of that servant girl, has had caused peter to wilt what do you think happened to peter at that look from jesus with all that jesus was suffering with everything that he was going through his thoughts were not only on himself but on one of his beloved disciples That look didn't melt Peter. That look melted Peter's heart. Now, Peter didn't remember. At the crowing of the rooster, he he was still oblivious to what had happened. It was at the look of Jesus that Peter remembered the prophecy of his denial. And he went out and wept bitterly. The effect on Peter was shattering, but it was also restoring. Jeremiah 2:19, "Your evil will chastise you; your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, for fear of me is not in you," declares the Lord of hosts. It, it chastises, it reproves, it disciplines, but it doesn't destroy in the life of the believer. Now Peter wept. I'm sure that Judas wept too. Luke doesn't tell us this, but in later on in Matthew 26, you read about how when, when Jesus had been betrayed, Peter, or Judas rather, took the, the, the money, the blood money, the, the, the 20 shekels of silver, and threw it back into the temple. And he went out and hanged himself. He committed suicide, and the Pharisees took that that money and used it to, to buy the, the Potter's Field, where outsiders would be buried inside Jerusalem. What happens to Peter? Again, Luke doesn't tell us. But please turn with me in your Bible to to John chapter twenty-one. Then in verse 15. Three times, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? The first time, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus forgave Peter and Jesus restored Peter. This is the difference. When there is repentance, repentance, there is forgiveness and there is repentance and forgiveness only on the one who is truly a child of God. Both Judas and Peter were grieved by what they did, but the fruit of their actions from the grief revealed the reality of their hearts. I've I've talked to you about this many times, but please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10, 1 verse 11. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief versus godly grief. Worldly grief leads to death. But godly grief leads to repentance, a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. It produces life. And then in verse 11, we read the fruit of For see what earnestness this this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Jesus gave Judas the opportunity to repent. The the whole of of Jesus' ministry was an opportunity for for Judas to repent. But in the hardness of his heart, he hardened his heart against the Lord, against Jesus. His teaching. But Peter, had the look of Jesus, repented and was saved. I can't just stop and think. Just put yourself for a moment in Peter's shoes. And again, we don't have to think that difficulty about it because we all have done to one degree or another what Peter did. Put yourself in Peter's shoes and consider the Lord Jesus turning and looking at you. Reminds me of John Newton's hymn called The Look. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Oh, can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me. My soul is thrilled, my heart is filled to think he died for me. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins, his blood had spilt, and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Jesus had mercy on Peter and, and restored him, entrusting him once again with the light, with the truth of the gospel, and with the leadership of the apostolic band. But Judas, on the other hand, is a stark contrast. As he is the one who refuses to receive mercy, who is cast off from his apostolic office and cut off from eternal life. And the reality is every one of us in this room is either Peter or Judas. We're all Peter or Judas. We are all going to sin. That much is a given. Now you may have not sinned in exactly the same way as Judas sinned or as Peter sinned. But Peter and Judas are there as warnings to us to take heed lest we fall. To pray to not enter into temptation. To avail ourselves of the means of grace that God has given us to to stand fast, to stand firm. Again, by his appointed means. So there is a warning. But they're also there as testimonies of who Jesus is on the one, on Judas. Jesus pronounced woe upon him. And Judas is now suffering in conscious torment as he awaits the final judgment. Or Peter, repentant, forgiven, restored. Peter failed but his fall was not full and final failure. This table is a reminder that we also have hope, not in ourselves, not in our ability, not in our righteousness, not in our anything, but in Christ's everything. In the death that he died for our sins, in the life that he lived for our righteousness. This bread and this cup is a reminder as we look back to all that Christ has accomplished for us and it's also a promise looking ahead that Christ will come and take all who are his and cause us to be with him for eternity. As we anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb and and all the joys of the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of our Lord and Savior. As you sit here this morning are you Judas, or are you Peter? May you, through the power of the Spirit, be able to answer that question in the truth and respond to the truth with repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we all confess that but for your grace, we are all Judas, every one of us. that we would all betray you. That we would all reject you out of hand for all eternity. But we praise you for your sovereign grace. Lord, in granting us repentance and faith. Like you did Peter. We praise you, Lord, for the salvation that we have in Christ. We praise you, Lord God, for the redemption we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and also for the restoration that we have in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, help us all to walk in the light. Help us to heed the warnings of this passage. Help us to look to Christ. Lord, to believe the gospel, not as as an, an event we did years ago, but as our conscious daily need. We need you every hour. Help us, Lord Jesus. Strengthen us, we pray. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.